0: Hello, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie, and I'm here with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hey, Guthrie. And we also, we have a very special guest today. You want to introduce our guest?
1: We do. We have Sydney on my, and Sydney is a product designer at Kickstarter, and she's joining us today. Hi, Sydney. Hi, how are you? Thanks for Hi. having me. Yeah, we're glad to have you here. And you are talking to us today from what location? Brooklyn, New York.
0: Brooklyn, New York. Very nice. All
1: right. So, um, Sydney, we haven't met in person yet. One day we will, I hope. I really hope so. But uh, we have talked on the phone together a couple times. So um, I guess let's start. I mean, there's all kinds of things I want to talk to you about. Um, but why don't we just start with having you talk a little bit about, um, what it's like to be a product designer at Kickstarter, and then maybe you can also talk to us a little bit about what you have been doing, how long you've been at Kickstarter and what you did before
2: you got there. Let's start there. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so let's start with Kickstarter. Um, I started at Kickstarter in March this year, so it's been nine months. And um, I actually started from in quarantine. Um, I started working from home, and um, yeah, I, I have not met a lot of my coworkers in person. Uh-huh. So it's been a very interesting experience, but uh, we, we did ship a big feature this year and um, that was all done remotely, so I'm very proud of the team. Um, So yeah, at at Kickstarter, I am a product designer on the Creator Tools team. and um, What that means is I I built tools for creators on our platform, and um, most recently we ship add-ons, which is a feature that allows creators to set up and manage um, optional add-on rewards um, and backers to um, Back for them um, to add them to their main pledge during checkout, and um, it was a very high demand functionality by our um, community. So I am very happy to see it launch and out in the world. Um, so yeah.
0: So one of the reasons that we wanted to have her on is I, I think um, I think you know your experience uh, really is is unique. We usually talk to people who are I don't know stuffy. I've done a bunch of stuff already. Uh, stuffy.
1: stuffy. Yeah,
0: yeah. Stuffy. Yeah. Sometimes.
1: So, so you mean any? Stuffy. Hopefully, none of our previous guests are listening to this. Brilliant. You brilliant. That you think they're stuffy.
0: But brilliant.
1: Uh-huh. Um, <laughs>
0: uh huh. Um. Uh. I I do. Uh. For the listeners out there, uh. We we once got a review. Uh, that I, I believe called Susan like a, a pretty corporate, and she's been very bitter about that um, ever <laughs> I, I ever thought since. that was
1: a compliment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so, so <laughs> would you consider being corporate a compliment in 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 uh, where amongst amongst your peers in Brooklyn?
2: Amongst my peer in Brooklyn. Um, yeah. If one of,
0: if one of the people who was like, you know, your age, hanging out in the UX field rolled over and was like, hey, you're pretty corporate. (laughs) Um,
2: I think the popular consensus would be, no, it's not cool, especially in Brooklyn. Uh, but you know, I, I design for businesses. I've worked with, um, you know, clients from big to small. I, you know, I've worked at startups. I've worked, um, for clients like IBM. i I work at Kickstarter. It's it's all a variety of sizes, and I think I've learned um, a great deal every time I work with a a, a different size
0: um, client. Yeah. So so Susan, let's can we just explore this for two minutes?
1: Go right ahead.
0: Okay, so here we we have um, you know when you were growing up, every, I mean mm. everyone always works for big companies. It's just you know <laughs> there's lots of people that are working for companies. That's great, um, and they. Sp- they're basically spending their lives trying to help make this company more money. And in theory, you might ancillarily be able to, um, you know, make the world a better place maybe, but that's really a cherry on top. Most people never really get to, and that's, Mm. and that is totally, totally, totally. Okay. Uh, if you're, uh, if you're at the, you know, UX team and somewhere and your goal is just to sell more, you know, generic insert generic product here. I think that's fantastic. Now, Susan, when you mm. were growing up, and someone called you corporate, why was that a good thing?
1: Well, I don't know that anyone. Let's see. I don't know that it was a good thing. Um, I even think even had, back in the day. I well, I think it might have had a slightly different meaning than than it does now.
0: Which but was? But maybe
1: not. Maybe not.
0: So I, I can tell you my interpretation of it.
1: Well, all right, back in the day, as you say, Uh it would have meant that you were, you know, part of what we would have called the establishment. It would have meant that you were uh, not radical, not cool. Uh, You were part of the status quo, which is probably what it means now. Yeah. It might have even had a more negative meaning back then than it does now. You know, there were there were the square people and then there were the, you know, hip people. And if you were corporate, you were one of the square people.
0: However, so uh, one thing I, I should say is and the reason I'm getting to this is that I really do think that there has been a. Change in the in the corporate culture. People who are working at corporations, how the mental model of how they view themselves has shifted. So mm-hmm. when you probably were starting out your career, Susan, um, standing out, being unique, diversity, uh, things that that w- that was probably frowned upon. I'm imagining that your first couple uh, days on the job, when you were starting your, your sort of first big career um you know job uh tattoos uh interesting hairstyles Th- these things were you know uh uh radical um uh clothing these things were probably not accepted or seen as a yeah positive. they
1: definitely were I mean there are they're always a signal I would say they were a stronger signal back then Back then, and um, and and not uh, you—you wouldn't have gotten the job. Yeah, I mean, you just wouldn't have ever. You wouldn't show up the first day on the job like that because you wouldn't have gotten the job.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, you know, being corporate was something that was sort of a almost a. Un- it was an unwritten mandated policy from the top down and the maybe the nicer way to say that is professionalism perhaps
1: yeah whereas you know.
0: know hey t- t- you know tell us you want to tell us a little bit about um the very very straight-laced culture at kickstarter and how they definitely do not let any individual expression uh, occur at their employees
2: <laughs> um
0: I'm assuming I, that's uh, not the case. I've never actually. That, been that is not the case.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you're making a joke. Uh, um, no, yeah, Kickstarter. Kickstarter is an interesting case. Um, they've been around for 10 years, no, 11 years now, and very much like they still have a very startup kind of vibe Um, and even when I was in the office interviewing I I could feel the energies from you know and the individuality from from people working there Um, and um, yeah even you know throughout my interview process um, it was rigorous but it was really fun and I think uh, people were having a conversation with me as as opposed to like you know testing me Uh, and overall like yeah uh, that, that was just
0: the energy that I got from from them. Yeah. So I I think I think it's probably a good thing that the individuality is recognized by companies as oh you're actually providing new perspectives, and yeah. actually new perspectives might actually even mean creativity and more money, For sure. uh, better yeah. outcomes. Um, yeah. So just just that just that little anecdote there, we can see how far. Uh, uh, the, I guess, things have changed. But also, um, one of the reasons that, uh, we wanted to talk about this topic was because, you know, um, there is a lot of, uh, next generation UXers coming through. And I think they are, uh, pretty different from, um, maybe the, 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 the Gen X and, and, uh, Mm. or even even old millennial even old millennials um,
1: or next generation product designers product
0: designers as well Mm -hmm. yes yes and i i think um i i find it interesting because so susan we talk about this all the time you know you don't want to put your biases into the products you're designing in theory if you're really putting the user first whether you're 80 years old or 25 years old uh, we at in any part of the country, if you are putting your users first, the end product should probably end up the same because if you did a perfect job, you're just you're doing whatever is best for the user. And your own biases about what the product should be shouldn't really shine through. Although
1: you know that's not true, um, but that's but that's just
0: yeah. it, right? If you, yeah. That's not how it works at all, and those those biases right. always shine, shine through. And so, um, this sort of next generation of product designers, uh, you know, you you guys are really going to influence and really change how products look and feel and are designed um, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. And so, uh, just getting a, picking picking your brain about what you think is important in design and
1: yeah so Sydney how do you not how do you personally uh try to assuming you do try to (laughs) not let not let your own you know biases about the world or about you know what you prefer and so on how do you uh guard against that creeping into Mm. your product design decisions
2: Yeah, um, I think um, I think I think the the UX world in general um, likes to talk about validating hypotheses, and um, that's definitely something that's been you know brought up a lot and like you know um, that's that's a phrase that you know UXers use to like you know flex, (laughs) and um, I think as much as the UX were like talking about it, um, you don't do it quite enough. And when they do do it, it kind of, you know, their go-to methods are usually um, relatively qualitative. Um, They interview users, you know, it's it's a lot easier to start interviewing someone um, and just start talking to them than, you know, do some quantitative data analysis. And for me, like the, the one thing that has kept me relatively, um, like, unbiased over the years, over the course of my um, career, has been my ability to um, to go into Looker um, and to query some data about our users and just have a very, um, like, top of the line, like, like you know, big picture of who the people I design for um, are. And um just like just some preliminary, you know, um uh, filtering and um and yeah, just just to just, just to see like what and, and drawing patterns from like these groups that I see so that I don't go into an interview and like, you know, just pick out 10 random people. Like I want the pool to be representative of, you know, the 80% case user and the 20% case user. Um I want the pool to be all inclusive and um yeah, I think that's that's how I've been going about it. Is there a, a, is
1: there a uh, kind of standard profile of, uh, you know, if you're thinking about the, cause you had said you guys shipped a product um, or, or some product features at Kickstarter. Is there a standard user profile for the types of product features that you've been working on like who you know who
2: is a kickstarter creator Mm. so we do have personas um we have you know the, the leisure creators who um who would do like one or two products on Kickstarter, and they're relatively small. And then there are, you know, the big time creators who run, you know, million of dollar campaigns. And a lot of time we're able to bucket creators based on um, their um, the size of their campaign, their experience um, running campaigns, um, the category of projects that they 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 are. Um, they, they are making and um, yeah and their risk profile um, are they likely to fulfill and those are the filters that I they translate to into physical filters that I go into our uh, looker database and I filter them um, and yeah for, for I think for every single um, like user research like project that we want to run I, I want the um, the pool of you know, uh, our sample pool to be representative of all of those, um, you know, creators of different sizes. All
1: right. so can you give an example of uh, how you might have a group of users who, uh, you know, have a score or, you know, on this factor, they're this versus a group of users who you know, are at a different different end of the continuum on that same factor, and then how you might design a product differently for them based on where they're falling on that scale?
2: Mm.
0: Um,
2: yeah, uh, I think that is a really good question. Um, I think so, I think, a good example for this is um, when Kickstarter first started out, um, they were they were a lot more um, like non physical reward projects um, than like physical rewards projects. And then over the years, it has transformed into this platform that where we call it the narrowing of the platform, um, where there's a lot more creators that. That create like physical reward projects, like you know they they produce like a uh, like a self watering you know plant pot as opposed to like use Kickstarter to fund their album um, or CD, and that um, I think every single time when we design um, you know the, the reward um, creation flow, as um, most recently add-ons, we have to keep that in mind that like yes. Although the 80% case is, uh, you know, creators who are making uh, physical rewards and they probably want to itemize, you know, their their big rewards into, like, uh, the different components of that, you know, um, physical reward and, like, what is being shipped out. Um, there are, you know, our 20% case, the creators who really don't need to itemize at all. And, and they just, you know, they, maybe they have, like, a PDF comic book and that's it. Um, and and you know the UI needs to be able to um, like accommodate both. Uh, it needs to be flexible enough to include all of the itemization, and it needs to be flexible enough as well to like you know just just you know um, just just um, yeah just just have one one single big reward. Uh, so I think that that's, that's of the closest example that I could think of. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So you said that when you, uh, it sounds like when you interviewed a Kickstarter that the interview process was at least partly in person.
2: It was partly. In, yeah, it
1: was, it was in but person. But then when you actually started working there at that point, then. Right. Everyone was working from home. So do you, how do you think You know, starting at a new position and basically, you know, working from uh, working remotely as a new employee and still working remotely, right? And getting to know all Mm -hmm. your team and so on totally remotely. How, do you think that's changed how is that different than if you had been able to you know go into an office do you have any sense of that
2: um yeah definitely I I think uh, um, you know throughout my career has always I, I have always been like a very um, like in-person <laughs> kind of person I, I like to uh, you know um, you know have the here on the shoulder and check in on you know how how the how yeah how, how they're Coding and how um, how the the product is coming along, and I, I like to be able to see the work in progress, like literally, you know, right in in, in the desk right next to me, <laughs> and uh, I haven't been able to you know do that since we all start from home. So um, I think uh, yeah, it just you know in the beginning it was hard, and I think I like I kind of lost some of the um, my original like. You know, inclina- inclination to um, to like uh, be be a lot more more um, in person and interactive. Um, I kind of forgot that I I like to do that, and and I think like it took a couple of months in for me to realize that oh, like there must be other ways to do it. And we start setting up like desk checks with engineers to check in on progress. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's been really fun. It, there's some very collaborative session where. Um, Um, I kind of see them code live and we kind of tweak things, um, you know, uh, live. And it was really great. So would you say there's a, uh,
1: there's one technology tool that has been the most useful in in helping with this issue that you've been using?
2: Mm. Uh, Yeah, so I think um, for... Brainstorming um, and you know, gather a whole team's thoughts together. I think Mirror has been a really good platform. Uh, M I R O Mirror. Um, they um, they're like a, an online collaboration tool. They it's basically an artboard, and you you know, um, pin some you know, sticky notes and stuff on it. It's very free form and free format, and yeah, really, it's very easy to use. And we use it a lot, and we love it. Starter. Yeah,
1: I wonder. Um, at the end of all this, uh, of all this, well, if there ever is an end to all of this okay. remote work, what is going to happen? I can just—it's—it's it's like an archaeological dig, you know, wow. where, where centuries from now, someone will look and say, "What was this time period where they, yeah. there's all these abandoned miro boards?" Uh, I wonder what happened during mm. 2020. Mm. No, but you kind of wonder where, what's going to happen moving forward. Like, if if and when we start working together in person, will we still do everything on a Miro board? Guthrie, what's your impression of that?
0: Uh, you know, I think Miro is probably here to stay. Um, I think there's a lot of... I mean, the, yeah, it's sort of like... Uh, <laughs> There have been, I'm a little bit of a history buff, and um, there, there's sort of this, uh, I don't know, I guess you can call it theory, I suppose, that basically there are certain periods in history when um, cu- cultures, when the, sort of the status quo was uprooted, and uh, you can, you know, maybe think of like some sort of invading army, you know, is running a region for a while, uh, you know, and by, you know, history, right, a while is like 200 years, Um so there are these there are these times when there's this sort of cultural melting that happens where the old systems are sort of removed and through uh, just necessity, uh, new systems are created. And a lot of, um, I don't know, they're, they're just it's like it's like, would would, you know, this society be as successful or be the way it is if it hadn't been for the time that, you know, so and so, conquered the territory a thousand years ago and all of a sudden everyone started speaking the same language or they all adopted the same form of you know weighing things or monetary stuff or the ideas of you know such and such uh, financial stuff kind of spread um, and so during during these periods of uh, change of hi- hi- sort of hyper change and the destruction of old patterns, um, that's sort of the new. That's the new status quo moving forward. And once the invaders, uh, you know, are eventually, you know, they leave, um, they don't ever really truly leave. It's like it's like a part of a part of them is sort of imprinted there, and it's that's just sort of part of um, the society now. And so I, I I would expect that there are a lot of habits and a lot of new processes. Uh, so yeah, something like Miro, uh, that just that 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 stick and it doesn't go away, and uh, it's it's just it's just a part of us now, part of our workflows, and that's good. That's fine. Um, that's it. That's exciting.
1: Sydney, you agree with that?
2: Yes, I I think they definitely are. Uh, I think um, yeah, they they are the they they're the artifacts of of this. Um, this past year and they're, they're gonna continue uh, producing artifacts for the years to come. I think um, even when, you know, um, things are back to normal, uh, I, I don't think work culture will be completely, you know, the same as it was before. Like I, I definitely expect a lot more of, um, of, you know, working from home being the norm and um, being able to collaborate um, from home like this. Is, it's definitely very useful. Yeah. So it's, I think it's a good tool to stay. <laughs> All right. So All right. Uh, yeah, are ahead. we,
0: are we going to, are we both going to change the topics at the same time? Was that what we were, we were going to do?
1: I, uh, I don't know. Go ahead. You, you can go ahead and, and go first and I'll go later.
0: Okay. So um, Cindy, one of the interesting things that uh, we would just like to know a little bit about, and you have a unique perspective on this, and it's it's something we've chit chatted a little bit uh, about before, not on this podcast, mm-hmm. but in other places. Um, you have a bit of experience uh, of the the cultural differences in design between, mm-hmm. I guess you would call, sort of Europe slash American design, and mm-hmm. uh, you know what what I guess we call e- you know, Eastern, a- a- more more uh, Asian design, especially when it comes to mobile apps. Um, I don't know how familiar the audience is with any of those concepts. You want to just do a, a little, uh, just give a little background and then we'll we'll dive into it?
2: Um, yeah, uh, I think uh, because of my upbringing and... Which um, I
0: don't know if anyone knows about, so don't forget right. to... <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: for sure. Uh, uh, so I was born and raised in Vietnam, in Hanoi, Vietnam, until I was... 15 years old, and then I came to the states um, to uh, for boarding school, and then I went to um, college here. Went to school at NYU, and then I've been working here ever since. So um, it's been 10 years, and really, I I think I, I really grew up in two places. I, I split my time. So um, definitely, I, I think there's um, there's there's um, there's a word that um, um, there's an anthropologic. Anthropological work for for people like us—they're called um, third culture kids. Um, and I think in terms of design, like I, I really look for influence from a variety of applications from from other cultures. Um, and I, I like to incorporate elements of Eastern and Western designs. And I think that because of my um, my my upbringing and my background and what I, um, you know. The thing that I gravitate towards, um, I, I like to challenge, you know, conventional notions of aesthetics. Um, and um, yeah, uh, so one, one of the um, the most prominent things about um, Eastern design, especially Eastern like web design, is the high information density. Um, I think, um, yeah, when you look at a Chinese or like a, a Japanese website, um, there's uh, a lot you you kind of get bombarded with information um, on the on the first glance, like on, on the first page, and then um, yeah, I, I think there's definitely this underlying um, cultural notion that space is limited, um, physical and both um, you know virtual, like you know online space, uh, and and so there's there's that you know higher in- information Density that is that provides a sense of familiarity um, to 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 Eastern users um, and yeah and I think another um, an- another um, aspect that's worth touching on is um, in a lot of Eastern um, websites and applications there's a lavish use of flash banners um, and iconography and colors and graphic and it's just very robust. Um, and, and it might make the site look dated. Um, but yeah, it's definitely another big difference. Um, yeah.
0: Susan, you want to do follow ups or should I?
1: Uh, you, you go first, and then I'll, I'll follow up on your follow ups.
0: So information density, uh, just for people who um, may not be for, familiar with apps or websites uh, from you know, China or Japan, Literally, when you look at the screen, there's just less white space. Is that that, that an accurate understanding?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, there's definitely a lot less negative space. And um, you see all the information at once. You don't really need to scroll. (laughs) You just see it's like a big menu, basically.
0: And so do you have any theories uh, about why in the united states at least uh people seem to like having the mm-hmm. wide open <laughs> spaces uh lots of white space you know maybe that means more clicks more scrolling more whatever but like whatever we we like you know we like that sort of broad um, not cluttered look versus uh in uh a- a- asian markets where they certainly uh you know they they need to have they need to be using all that space
2: mm, yeah uh i think um underlyingly it, it it ties to um to to our cultural differences it's um you know in in asia um you know there's you know the space overall like i, I previously mentioned physical and physical space is limited, and that translates into the web uh, i think in the west there's um there's, you know, um, there's certain like um, uh, frivolity when it comes to space, and and yeah, and and the, and the freedom to like use the use the space in like a web page, and uh, I think, um, and also I think with a lot of um, Asian application, um, um, they like devices, um, they they're they will to cater to an older more aging population, and the applications are um, need to bo- need to be able to like live in older devices. And I think um, you know when when you have to like scroll a lot in like an old PC, it's it's not a great experience. And um, I think there's definitely like a a, a te- technological advantage here in the West, where the devices are a bit newer, and also you know the population is a lot more um like uh you know used to like uh fancier devices and like you know uh, newer browsers uh so i think that's that's also that's also ties into that yeah.
0: so do you think that like in like 10 years from now um all the asian application design is going to be have like tons of white space because they'll they'll have uh you know like all, all the you know modern hardware that can run all the applications or do you um, think there's something else going on?
2: I don't know if that's necessarily true because, you know, in 10 years, I, I think, you know, uh, over there, like in the East, like we would still have a very aging population, uh, you know, that, that kind of a structure is not gonna change really quick. Um, and overall, like, you know, um, for, for an aging population, it's a lot more trustworthy. It's to like be able to look at a page and like see everything um and yeah it's it's just a lot you know more a lot (laughs) more utilitarian i guess uh to be able to do that in you know one single big glance. and Um, if
1: it if it has to do with the physical space that that's not likely to change dramatically in 10 years later
2: um i think if anything what i've observed is um you know with um with Facebook, Facebook has really like become like an all in one application um, that, you know, uh, it is hard to put a name to Facebook now. It's, It's like, you know, there's so much functionality in it. You know, there's posting, but there's also marketplace and selling. And it's very much has taken up this model that a lot of you know, Asian application has, which is, you know, WeChat. You can chat on it, you can shop on it, you can book a restaurant on it, and it, it is the yeah. It that has been very interesting to see like the um, um the the birth of these you know, you know all in one kind of consolidated applications. Yeah,
1: unless the uh, antitrust. Yeah. (laughs) Movement gets going and then we might not have those. Right. You know, I was reminded when you were talking, though, about uh, a conversation I had years ago with someone from Asia who had come over to the States to do some work and to stay for, you know, a couple months. Mm. And she was talking about the emotional reaction. She had, you know, she flew into, I think, JFK in New York, but then she was gonna be staying with some people that she knew out in Connecticut, right? Mm. Which is outside of New York. And this was actually a pretty rural part of Connecticut. And her, she had never, you know, she'd grown up in Asia. She'd never really been outside of Asia except for maybe some trips to major cities. So this was her first experience living and staying for you know a couple of months out in what we would consider rural America. Mm-hmm. And she talked about her
0: uh, can I wait, can I interrupt you with an East Coast question? Is there me? such thing? Yeah, yeah. Susan's lived on the yeah. East Coast,. Really. Yeah. is does rural Connecticut exist?
1: Yes okay. <laughs> Because, you
0: know, us, you know, I'm from the Midwest, when we think Connecticut, we think of like, not urban, but we think of like, you know, little small New England towns. There are
1: very Mm -hmm. many small New England towns and lots of suburban, and there's also rural Connecticut.
0: Okay. I believe you.
1: So, you know, where you're uh, out on on a piece of property that's pretty large and, I mean in the distance you can see another house but they're not next door to you okay not too different from where you grew up in wisconsin Guthrie. so anyway she's she said when she was uh, riding in this car someone had picked her up and she was riding in the car and she was having a an emotional a, a negative emotional reaction like she found it scary Like it was frightening to have all that, essentially white space, you know? It made her feel uh, vulnerable. It made her feel, what if something goes wrong? There's no one near me to help me out. You know, it was just this, um, rather than having this idyllic reaction of, oh, isn't this beautiful? Won't this be nice to be in this quiet place? To her, it was a frightening place, right? And yeah, and that you know, it made me think about, um, you know, we have these lo- sometimes largely unconscious emotional reactions mm. to physical density, right? Depending on what we're used to, and you know, you're you're tying in physical density to digital density. And so I can, you know, there's probably a lot more, you know, me being the psychologist, probably a lot more psychological issues that we don't even think about with this question of screen density and east versus west or cultural differences.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I I really like that uh, anecdote that you just gave. Um, I definitely think that like to a lot of people like be able to, to like identify like negative space like is like comfortable and like you know um and like breathable but to you know um people from the other side of the world like people in the east uh it it creates you know the their inability to like see everything at once and like it, it creates this mistrust and in, in in the site and in, in the application it it's like, oh, like they don't have enough things to show. Um, yeah. So that's that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, and there's some research that's done that was done in terms of uh, uh users in Japan. Mm. I don't know if they did research in any other places, but um you know they there's the the concept, the term that we talk about is progressive disclosure, where yeah. you show a little bit of information and then right. you click on a link and more information will show up. And in Japan, in, in when they did this particular piece of research, um, and I should look for this reference while I'll finish my conversation, and then mm. I'm gonna go look up the reference while you guys talk, um, so that I don't just say they. Uh, anyway, they, they uh, found that in, in, uh, with the US audience that they tested, uh, people liked the uh, the idea of using progressive disclosure because it meant there wasn't too much information at once, and it wasn't overwhelming, and they could click when they wanted cool. more. But in Japan, the the reaction to that was what you just said, which is, "I don't trust the site. Why are mm-hmm. they hiding the information?" Right. Um, so it wasn't seen as a positive thing at all. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Yeah.
0: Whereas, you know, right. I think a lot of people...
1: I'm going I'm to go look up this reference. You guys keep talking. Okay, we'll talk amongst ourselves. Uh,
0: <laughs> um, you know, yeah, progressive disclosure is is something that in a lot of ways... Like, if you... I, I, I do... Um, I'm a behavioral economist. I mean, I, I, I write about it and speak about it. And uh, I, I actually just... Uh, I'm doing a, a uh, sort of a video course... Um, all about uh, behavioral economics, and the, the subject that I just st- finished video editing was all about trust mm. and how I mean people really, really, really underrate how important trust is uh, in mm. a product and in society right. and um, right. for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, and and for economies as well. And so mm. there are these. Um, uh, there are these inefficiencies that occur when you when there's a lack of trust. It mm. means uh, when there is trust, you can do things in a more efficient manner. And progressive disclosure for the user, for their, I don't know, cognitive visual load, I suppose, mm. it is more efficient if you have less stuff on a page. There's just less that the user needs to concentrate on, focus on. So So much like, think if you walked into a store and most of the shelves were empty. If you have um, trust that, oh, it, they, they have that stuff in the back, they're plenty stocked, they have all the things I need, it's just not directly in front of me, and then I can just, you know, ask, that's fine, um, then it's, it's a little more efficient. Because you can sort of focus on, you know, one or two products at a time. You don't have to have like the mm. grocery store, right? But in the grocery store model, even here in the United States, like what makes people feel comfortable is like the shelves totally stocked with food. Right. There's no yeah. shortage of food. There's just food everywhere. Um, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so so if you don't trust that a site is displaying all the information, either because they're trying to hide something or they just don't offer the same products and services um, or they don't have All the information. Uh, A a lot of times, you use progressive disclosure. If you like, I don't know, there's some big fancy business application, you know, and there's like a ton of data. But if you don't show it, if you don't trust that they have it, you may think, oh, this product is you know inferior. And so, um, I think uh, this is all to say that I just did a whole section about how people (laughs) under underestimate the importance of trust on uh, on everything, and I think trust in design. also um, right. also is a big is a big factor because i mean yeah i guess i guess if you if you say hey look at all the stuff we have and we're just trying to cram all the stuff on the screen i guess it it probably feels like hey these guys do a lot and yeah, in yeah. but but it, but it's almost like a lot of companies i feel in in america like specialization is a good thing it's mm. like We only make uh, like, like rubber gaskets for toilets. That's all we do. We're just, you know, and so our website, you can order one thing and it's the rubber toilet gasket. (laughs) And so as an American, I'm like, yes, I needed a rubber toilet gasket for my toilet. These guys are, this is the place, like this is what they do. Um, Now Amazon's the counter, but you know they do a really good job developing that trust with their consumers. So assuming you're going to some place for the first time and you may not have that trust. If I to me as, you know, a, a born and bred American, the idea that there's one company and they only do one thing and they don't have like any products and they like if like if their website was just blank with a thing that says like buy a rubber toilet gasket, I'd be like this is the best Website. I'm so happy that I'm <laughs> here. Um, but it, it just sounds like maybe that's that's not the impression that happens in other places.
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. And and your um, toilet example kind of reminds me of <laughs> uh, <laughs> Hello Tushy, which is this really great uh, bidet um, product. Uh, and it's uh yeah, and their website like basically that. Just like you can this um this attachment to your toilet (laughs) like and yeah it's just like one thing one single thing that they do really well
0: (laughs) uh season did you ever find that citation looks like she's still she's she's still working and uh i'm trying to find that um so
1: i I am i am listening to what you're saying and no i I haven't found it yet oh you Um, just you just keep going that's but i cannot believe we're talking about you know bathroom products (laughs) on this podcast episode but keep going guys you're you're doing great and i i'm gonna try one more place to find this reference and then i'll give up
0: so one of the things that i want to ask your opinion about is i think there's um some you know there's a lot of companies that have like one unified app for a we'll just say global audience Mm. you know a lot of you know there's multinational companies that are trying to do it all And I do think there's a lot of companies where the um, Eastern influence is seeping into their, the design of their apps. Uh, You know, sort you know, if you look at um, Facebook, it's obviously a good example, but there are, there are other examples as well uh, because they're trying to make a sort of a unified global brand. And so that's making like, like the sort of like, Hey, here's like a bunch of tabs and a bunch of things and, Mm -hmm. The app it has all this functionality that's sort of coming in some ways but then i i i feel like um the western design is also see like it's all sort of like homogenizing in some way because these giant multinational companies just need like a unified global app um do you do you think that that's a that that's a real trend am i imagining that Uh, do you think that will continue is there like some middle ground in between that they're gonna try and hey, this is good enough for all audiences, and we'll just kind of hope it's good, even at maybe the detriment of not making anyone happy.
2: Mm, yeah, uh, I I think that's a really good observation. Um, I think that you know, um, well, building product, it's it's a lot more than just you know pleasing um, all groups of users you know it uh, when you're building products you're working with a business goal in mind you probably have a lot of constraints and uh i think because of these constraints you want to build things uh modularly not um customizably meaning that um whatever that you decided to you know um to happen for one app with this this group of User um, should translate to you know um, this version of that with a group of users somewhere else in the world, and like I think um, overall like your design system and you know the level the level of modularity um, should stay consistent, and you should not you know just customize this one like big layout for you know this group of user users in in, in another culture, uh, but All that is to say, like I think there's definitely some like um, accommodation and like adaptation when it comes to applications being introduced in like uh, or being launched in like the Asian market. Like um, Yahoo News, for example, their Japanese sites like very dense. Um, And yeah, and and like while you know a lot of these colors and you know um, and maybe some level of layout stays the same. uh, There's just some you know level of of. Um, adaptation there.
0: Uh, I would like to note for the record that the Kickstarter website has lots of white space.
2: <laughs> it definitely does. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's something that we we talk about a lot, and we we complain about it. Um, oh, and right. uh, yeah, um, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I have I have uh, just just one one or two questions about Kickstarter culture. Do you guys like? Is there like I don't know, do people who work at Kickstarter, like, spend money on Kickstarter, investing in Kickstarter projects? Or is it sort of like a don't, like, you know, you, you, you don't, uh, you sort of stay out of it because you're part of the system?
2: <laughs> um, yeah, I think a lot of us are, like, big fan of the product, um, and... Of the community, so I, I I wouldn't say I'm I'm like a super backer or anything, but sure. I, I do back quite uh, a decent amount. And I think the thing about Kickstarter is we, you know, we're we have fans. <laughs> we have um, like people who are very excited about a project launching, and they would follow that creator like through and through. And um, yeah, uh, it's it's been really interesting to like design for like such bought-in like avid users um, because um, you know there's a certain degree of like buying in that happened already so like oh it's great you know like they will use this but then our users also very like emotionally like attached to the product because they're so you know bought into it that they uh they have a lot of opinions and uh yeah it's, it's really interesting uh kickstarter is like not transactional at all like, i think a lot of time you go to like you know, in e-commerce side and you're like, all right, I'm just here to like buy the things, like who care if it's you know, it's a terrible site. Like, you know, I'm just here in and out. But like with Kickstarter, you know, community backers, they they're fans. They're very they're very avid about like how, you know, the product should be.
0: Are there any like seminal Kickstarter campaigns that like in the meeting, it, it's sort of like there's almost like a Kickstarter wall of fame. It's like, these are, like, the, oh, my God, like, like, in Windows, like, they're, like, if you work at Microsoft, there's, like, some seminal Microsoft, like, moments or products that, like, really kind of uh, are, like, almost lore within the company. Um, legendary, you mean? Legendary, sure, yes. Um, are there, do you, do you hear whispers of, of that at Kickstarter or or not?
2: In terms of, like, uh, projects that our creators launch or, like, features yeah. launch?
0: Uh, I guess either. I'll take, you know, whatever.
2: Well, yeah, for sure. Like in terms of projects, um, there are a lot of, we call them beacon projects. Um, yeah. Some of them went on and raised, you know, millions of dollars. So a lot of it's like, it's kind of defined by like, you know, how much money they raised as well. Uh, you yeah. Know, like how much they were able to build. So it, it's tied to that. And then in terms of features, um, it's interesting. Kickstarters, I, I don't think we, we've, really like, you know, built a lot of features, like we don't launch a lot of features. So when add-ons launch, uh, it was the biggest feature in five years uh, and it has like a big revenue impact. And um, yeah, we're generally, we're mo- a lot more cautious about the things that we decided to, you know, give out to the world at Kickstarter. Because um, fundamentally our core product is, you know, It's you know it's it's getting the job done and (laughs) yeah and I but I think like um, in this year we we have like you know really put ourselves out there and like really look into opportunities where like we feel confident about like launching the features um, and we have worked a lot faster too (laughs) yeah
1: all right guys so I gave up
0: I know it's out there.
1: I'll find it at some point, and if I do, I can always, you know, add it to the uh, blog posts that I always write when, I, when we publish this podcast episode. So I apologize for the faulty memory and not being able to find that research study. I will find it. And That's if anyone listening knows what the heck I'm talking about, email us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I guess, I guess, Guthrie, we're probably coming to the end of our time. Did you have any other questions for Sydney? No. Okay. So Thank Sydney, much, if man. people want to get hold of you, what's the best way
2: for them to do that? Yeah, uh, they can definitely uh email me at Sydney at and uh, I love to hear from them. Fantastic. So you're like the only Sydney at Kickstarter? <laughs> I guess I am, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's not a very common name. <laughs> and um, Guthrie, do you want to tell people how they can get hold of us if they want to get hold of
0: us? Yep, you can email info at the teamw.com. And, Uh Yeah, uh, isn't there something else they should be checking out?
1: Yeah, Sydney. What? What? Anything else you want to, to point people at? Uh, any? Anything you wanna? Any favorite causes? Any websites? Any thing we should give people a link to?
2: Um. No, I, I don't think I have any websites. But uh, I guess like, um, yeah, to young UX um designers out there who are aspiring to get a job in this field i yeah um i would say that there are a couple of books that i recommend um the first one is don't make me think uh, by steve crook a very uh, famous and um yeah like uh, basically a ux textbook uh which m- many of you might have heard about and then there's um One that I just discovered this year called um, Universal Design Methods. And it's, I think, 150 methods of um, design, of um, design techniques. And it's really great. Uh, You should definitely check it out. And do do you know the author of that one? Uh, Let me see if I could. It's a textbook, actually. Uh, The authors are Bella Martin and Bruce Hennington. yeah, okay. 125 ways to research complex problems. Okay,
0: that's X see, 20. you wrote a hundred things book. They have 125. Yeah, they've they, outdone uh, you.
1: They've outdone me, but I did write a hundred more things,
0: <laughs> so I have
1: two hundred. <laughs> so I've outdone them.
0: Oh, uh, that's too funny. <laughs>
1: Sydney, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a fun conversation.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Sydney. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi. Happy New Year.